0: Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the digital marketing podcast for tech marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. So before I start, you can go to the homepage of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com. I've published a guide to help you stand out. Uh, It's a nine bullshit-free lessons from world-class tech marketers, including Ron Fishkin from Moz or Seth Godin. Uh, So you can grab it for free on the homepage. Right, so in this episode, you're going to have a crash course on customer research and how to use it to understand what your audience really wants. My guest today is Liston Witherill. He's the CEO of GoodFunnel, and he wants to teach every business how to sell more effectively. So he's a conversion optimization and copywriting expert. He's obsessed with understanding how and why customers buy. You really need to take a look at his website, goodfunnel.co, because his copy is really, really good. Liston lives in Portland, Oregon, with his wife, his dog, and his cat. So Liston believes that marketing is about helping people to make informed decisions in their buying process. It's not about trying to convince them to buy if they don't want to. It's just about to help them in the process. So in this episode, we are going through a step-by-step process for customer research. So what questions you need to ask to people, what questions you need to avoid, how to contact people to agree to do interviews with you, what type of emails should you send, and how to identify your real competitors. This is a very important point. It's not really, usually it's not who you think, your real competitors. So as usual, have a listen and let me know what you think. So Liston, thank you so much for uh, spending a few uh, minutes of your time and talking to me. So you guys, you're in charge of GoodFunnel, which is an agency with a particular kind of approach that I'm going to go through in the next few minutes, but you specialize in an area where very few people specialize in. So you really try to understand why people buy, why they don't, and then you base your marketing strategy and you help your clients uh, based on that. So my first question to you would be, why do you think so very few agencies and marketers in general avoid customer research, avoid trying to understand people better?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I wanted to thank you for having me here. This is a few minutes of my time, but it's also your time and uh, everybody listening to this. So um, thank you to to you, Louie, and also to the dear listener. I appreciate that you're listening to this right now. I also wanted to make one quick correction, which is that I am no longer an agency. Um, I'm a solo operator. And so that's just a quick little side note. In terms of customer research, there, I, I think there's a lot of reasons, Louis, why people don't do it. And I think the biggest one, though, is laziness. And, you know, I spoke to David Darmanin on my podcast, uh, as well as lots of other people, Susan Wineshank and a few others. And we all agree on this point, that the biggest thing preventing most people from doing customer research is that it takes time. They're a little lazy about it. And I think often they don't know where to start. So hopefully one thing that we can do through the course of this uh, podcast recording is give people some tools so that they know where to start. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds exactly what I had in mind. Um, but
0: I'd like to challenge you on this first fight. I understand. I mean, I would, ag- I would agree that most people would be lazy into getting into these type of activities. But exactly as you said. I- I don't think they are lazy necessarily. I think that they really are overwhelmed by the, the amount of data they have in front of them, and they don't really know where to start. Uh, I think I think not that many would be pure lazy and say, you know, I don't want to do it; it's just it's just too much. Do you agree with me?
1: Yeah, perhaps. I mean, you know, one thing that I think anybody should think about um, in terms of customer research or really pulling any insights out of their business. Is before you go into the task of doing it, I think you need to sit down and think about well, what is it that I need to know? Like, what is the question that I'm trying to answer? And therefore, once I have that question written down, who knows what it is? Um, you know, maybe it's um, what causes my customers to buy for the first time? What causes most of my customers to buy for the second time? Uh, what causes people to not buy all of these types of questions are the things that we'd try to get at. Well, there would be a specific way to answer those questions depending on what the question is. Right? So on the one hand, I I think you're right that um, there can be kind of a state of overwhelm and and sort of shrug your shoulders and go, I don't know what to do. So I think I'll just guess, which I think is how most customer research is done. Um, But if you, if you're crystal clear, about the question you're trying to answer. Answering the question, finding the data, and doing it in a short time is actually not that difficult. Yeah, that's a fair point.
0: Like from your experience, you started to talk about it, but from your experience, I know it's a very generic question, but I, you might be able to answer it. What's the number one reason people don't buy the product online? Like, What's usually the thing that you see the most
1: uh, happening? Uh, yeah. So lack of trust okay. um, is, the, is the number one thing. So to me, all, all sales really comes down to establishing credibility and trust. And then obviously, uh, right audience, uh, right offer. So th- those are two other things that are pretty critical to, to nail. But if you don't have the trust and credibility, especially online, you have no chance to recover that sale. We're starting to see ways of doing that now with, you know, targeted chat messages through products like Intercom or Drift. Um, and we're, we're kind of getting at ways to recover people and build trust depending on where they are in their process and sort of what content they're viewing. However, I think it's going to be an ongoing challenge because what we're really attempting to do online is sell without the chance to respond to people's immediate individual needs. And therefore the trust needs to be built very, very well. And the product needs to be positioned such that it meets enough of that average person's needs that they'd be willing to take it if they can overcome that trust hurdle. But things like, you know, having a credible looking website, which means good, you know, good enough design is, uh, is what I would say. It doesn't need to be the best design, but it needs to be good enough. Um, a clear layout, um, testimonials on the page, examples of other companies using your service, these types of things all start to build trust, whether it's conscious or unconscious, and most of it will be unconscious on the part of the person viewing it. Um, but if there's no trust or a lack of trust, you really have no chance at that sale. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point.
0: So before drilling down into this in more detail, because it's a really interesting topic and something that I really like talking about as well, I'd like to tell you two things. And I, You can, I haven't told you that before and I did that on purpose so that, you know, it would be genuine, a genuine conversation between us two. But the reason why I knew you from before and I wanted to get in touch is because when I had an agency, we, I don't know how, but I stumbled upon your website, like goodfunnel, goodfunnel.co. And I don't remember exactly how, but it just, the copy on the websites, was so compelling, was so well written, yet written in simple terms. That I was like, "Fuck, this is the type of stuff we need to do." So when I had this agency, we basically looked at your website and I was like, "Okay, how can we, how can we have as good as a copy as those guys?" And this is why when you contacted me for this podcast, I was like, "Fuck, that's amazing! Uh, I can finally talk to the guy and the brain behind it." So that's the first compliment I wanted to tell you, and for the listeners as well you should definitely go to goodfunnel.co and look and read the copy. It's really read-written and you clearly have done your your homework.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Um, So to talk about you a little bit, um, you you ran marketing and sales for uh, a consulting firm in the past, and then you went into digital marketing in particular, and this is when you you created uh, goodfunnel.co. like you seem to be very driven. You seem to really know where you're going. You seem to have this kind of, you, know, you seem to be this kind of leader that people will naturally follow. But um, I want to go back to the root of that. Why are you the way you are today? What kind of kid were you? What kind of dreams
1: uh, did you have when you were growing up? Wow. So answer this in thirty seconds or less, right? No, no. Uh... Take your time. <laughs> Um what kind of kid was I? All right, so I think uh you know one important point to make in terms of my background is that I grew up um with my partially half the time my parents are divorced, half the time I was with my dad and stepmom and they ran something like nine businesses over the course of my life. Um wow. most of them were miserable failures. But two of them did pretty well. And so I was around entrepreneurship and technology from a very, very early age. So in 19, I'd say 1984, my dad started building custom computers for clients. Um, And so, you know, by the time I was 12, I started building computers and I was part of the business. And so I think some of my drive comes from that. I think, you know, some of it is just genetic or natural. I guess, depending on what you believe. But um, anytime I take a personality test, I, I score very high for uh, self-motivation and, and uh, kind of qualities like that. So, you know, I, I think part of it is natural. Part of it is my own background. Part of it is, you know, learned from, from my parents. You know, I, I also just really am deeply, deeply curious about people, What makes them make the decisions they make? Um, Why do they do the things that they do? Uh, How do they arrive at those um, kind of conclusions or or actions? So, you know, in my personal time, I read almost exclusively nonfiction and I'm for pleasure. I'm reading books about behavioral economics or even academic papers about psychology and decision making. Um, So this is kind of a window into who I am. That would be quite the same. I would be very interested in
0: that. But I, I, can't, figure, I can't figure out why I'm the way I am, like in, in why I have this, this interest, particularly in knowing how people behave. Do you have any
1: insight on your side? Why are you so interested in this topic? Yeah. So I, I think one of the big things is I'm often perplexed about the decisions people make. So uh, there's a great book by Dan Ariely called Predictably Irrational. And what he sets out to do in the book is answer the question, why do people make so many decisions that seemingly are irrational, right? They're, they're doing things maybe against that appear to us to be against their own self-interest. And if we're really programmed to survive, and that's how we've evolved, why would we do that? Right. So that's one thing. Um, you know, I'm very interested in politics, which I don't want to talk about on this (laughs) podcast. Um, but you know, the the only reason I bring it up is that if you look at, uh, sort of the, the way policies are formed, um, or the way people support different policies that are often against their own self-interest, I start to ask why, right? And I really am driven to understand what is going on? Like, what's the complexity and nuance behind a decision that seems to make no must? So that's, that's, you know, I, I think that's really, I'm trying to explain the world around me really. And Hmm. since so much of the world is driven by people and the way people behave, um, the more I can understand how people behave, uh, the, the more likely I am to understand the world. So you don't want to talk about politics, which is a shame, but, um, Let's let's is it? Yeah,
0: it's a shame. No, no, it's not. Let's take a quick example on on one thing you talked about which is why would people vote for a politician or or choose uh, a path that is directly against their self-interest? What what would be the main reasons why
1: they would do that? Well, I think it really varies. So Man, are you really going to make me talk about Donald Trump? That's um, not something I want to talk about. No, 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 um, no absolutely
0: not. No, I, I actually do. I, I I exactly knew the type of uh, person you were talking
1: about right there. Yeah, obviously. Um, well, so <laughs> why, do, why do people do things that are against their, their own self-interest? Well, I, I think what they're perceiving is that it's not, right? So I think that that's kind of the first condition that we need to think about is, um, you know, another thing to, to point out. So let's, let's just go ahead and talk about voting, right? So people vote for lots of different reasons. So, um, the reason people voted for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, um, could be different. Now, some people may not even be voting for political outcomes, right? So as I talked to a lot of people who did vote for Donald Trump, and I asked them, why did you vote for him? Some of them cast a vote against Hillary Clinton. Some, right? So they're, they're not saying I support Donald Trump so much. They're saying, I don't like Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Other people are, um, basically what I like to say is taking a piss on the system, right? They say, I'm so upset with politics the, the, you saw this in Brexit, right? I'm so upset with politics. I'm so upset with politicians quote unquote lying to me saying we're all going to be better off. And I'm not better off than I was 20 years ago. I say, fuck them all. I'm just going to vote for something that I know is going to piss them off. Um, so that's a totally different reason why you would vote for someone. Some people voted for Trump because they thought business experience was a really important thing. We're, we're actually seeing that that turns out not to be such a good governance strategy. Um, but you know, the, the, the point being is it's not one reason. There's lots and lots of different reasons and people in some ways are either trying to express themselves, which would be um, a way to satisfy their own self-interest. Right. I want to be heard. Um, So that's one thing. But that's not the same as I want a better economic outcome, which would be the most rational. I think the most rational reason to vote Um, or I want a stronger, more stable, more equitable society to me that would be a rational reason to vote but that's not why everybody votes similar to buying right so i always give the example a lot of people get hung up on selling features of a product so it does this um you would use it in these circumstances and one of the products i love to give the example of is um roundup weed killer right so i live in the us we love our lawns here something like a third of all of our surface areas dedicated to grass lawns, which is insane. But you, you need to control the weeds. Otherwise, your lawn looks like shit, right? So it could be tempting to sell Roundup by saying, you know, most effective chemical kills 99% of weeds, um, you know, have the greenest lawn, all these things. These, these So greenest lawn would be more of a benefit. But sort of the the way the chemical works and what it does those would all be features i would i would say though that people aren't actually buying any of that stuff the main reason they're buying roundup is because not just i don't want weeds and then the next level is i want a better lawn and then the next level is i want a greener lawn i think it's a level beyond that where they're saying i want my neighbors to walk by and think i have the best looking house on the block right I want people to ask me how I was able to do such a great job on the visual appearance of my house and therefore give me social um, points, right? Sort, sort of a, a political pull in the neighborhood. Everyone talks about how great my lawn is. Um, so, you, you know, the reason people buy it may be varied, but ultimately people want to feel pride in their home and they want to feel – um, like their neighbors are recognizing them for having a beautiful home, and those things are totally different than how effective the chemical is. Is this making sense? Absolutely. I mean, to me, it does.
0: Hopefully, the listeners will will get a good understanding of it. Uh, but this is right there is the difference between talking about features and and talking about the job to be done, right? Talking really about yes. exactly about how customers feel, and this is how. Like getting to this conclusion that seems extremely simple, or it's because you know people want to to uh, want their neighbors to look at their house, and therefore they will feel better about themselves about their social status. That's not very really simple, but yeah, this is incredibly difficult to get um, out of customer research. I mean, this is what we're going to talk about in the next few minutes and how to actually get to this answer. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. But before that, I'd like to back th- back uh, back down a little bit on uh, talking about marketing. And as you know, the angle uh, of this podcast is about, you know, shady, shitty marketing and, and the bullshit around it. So I'm interested to know on your point, on your side, what annoys you the most in today's marketing?
1: So the thing that annoys me the most by far is, um, and, and I have uh, a very good friend, Philip Morgan, and I talk about this a lot, and he's actually written an article about it, but um What marketers will tend to do, particularly in the marketing about marketing market, if that's not meta enough, um, what a lot of marketers will do is choose one fringe example of something that worked that may or may not ever work again. And then extrapolate from that, that this is the new way to do your marketing. So that's one of the things I hate in terms of actually marketing products. Um, I, for me, it's very simple. I don't like when people stretch the truth far enough to obviously say that's a lie. I I just, you know, (laughs) if you have to lie about your product, we talked about this in the lead up to the show. If you have to lie about your product, you have a shitty product, right? I can't sell or market effectively a shitty product. So if you can't be honest about your product, there's something wrong with the product or there's something wrong with the person you're marketing it to. Um, that's a bigger problem. Uh, but the the solution is not to lie or mislead your audience about it, because ultimately what you're going to find is people are dissatisfied. You have no word of mouth. There will be no growth um, behind your product. And and so I, I just, you know, I would look at those signals if I were you and, and use those to determine Am I doing something wrong on the front end?
2: Yeah, the, I
0: agree 100% with you. And I know that uh, uh, a lot of our listeners don't necessarily have the uh, the power to to make any changes to the product uh, or, or the services they're selling, right? And I know that a lot of them feel in their guts that they are not doing the right thing, that they could do do something better. So, what would be your advice to to those marketers feeling like they have to lie or, or trick people to sell
1: more stuff? Well. uh, they may not like it, but, uh, first of all, I would say, um, you know, marketing, marketing, selling, um, asking people to transact with you in any way it's, it's a relationship, right? So it's not, I, I always think about a photograph versus a video, right? So a photograph is a snapshot in time. And I think when we get too caught up in collecting tactics about marketing, we treat our marketing or our sales as if it's a snapshot in time. This, you know, we have one second to make the sale and that's it. And that's just not the way it works, right? People who are exposed to you for a long period of time today. You know, lots of literature is saying that people make say fifty percent, fifty to seventy percent of all of their research and buying decisions before they ever interact with you directly. Um, and so there's a lot that they've already built up, right? So it's not like how can I have that one tactic that's going to change everything? That's not how it works. Um, The way it works is there's this whole collection of things that are happening that point to uh, a person making both an emotional and a rational decision in order to buy something from you. So what I would say is you need to talk to your team. If you're getting feedback from people saying the product is, is wrong or it's not for me, you know, maybe you're not selling it to the right person that would be the first thing to look at um, the second thing to look at is maybe the product needs to be altered and if your team is not willing to respond maybe you should find a new job <laughs> I don't I don't know how else to say it um, but you know if, if you were the boss let's let's think about it this way if you were the CEO or, or the boss making all the decisions across a total product sort of, what would you do? And what would be the necessary steps in order to build the machine uh, that really works? Um, And so if you can start to answer those questions, I would say, go and talk to your team and and get some clarity and and let them know, you know, here's a big problem that we have selling this product and here's why. And of course, the more people on your team, the more they're going to say, well, you know, sounds like a marketing problem, right? Or sounds like something you're doing wrong because no one wants to take blame. But, um, Ultimately, it's got to be uh, a series of complementary steps and actions happening to get people to make a decision. So it's not it's not just a snapshot. So you'll definitely need to work with other people on that. So, so you mean that growth hacking is not going to work? Is it? Is it? Oh man!
0: <laughs> I can't know if I to hate that term. Um, what's that no you 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 were cutting i was like i can't wait for your answer
1: oh right yeah so i i wrote an article yeah no growth hacking is a bunch of bullshit um (laughs) so if you look at and here's what i mean by that right i work a lot in the b2b space and growth hacking doesn't work in b2b at all and the reason is if you look at all of the examples of growth hacking that people tout as being like you know oh if i can only do it like that so dropbox airbnb um, hotmail those are three of the biggest examples that people give about you know how growth hacking was just such an amazing success in all of those cases the product was free they were all pre-revenue no one made any money from any of the growth hacking in fact dropbox you know has if you look yeah, they got a lot of product awareness and adoption, but they were giving away free storage and now they don't even really care to sell to the individual market. They want to sell to businesses. So, you know, no, I don't, there's, there's no, no magic thing. And the problem, um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the article, the law of shitty click which is just a wonderfully written piece. I forget the name of the author, but basically what he says is if you stumble onto some marketing tactic that works much better than you think it should, it's, it's a, you know, there's a, a, a waning time on that. Like it's, it's going to expire. Other people are going to figure it out too, and it's no longer going to work. And now you're back to the hard work of, you know, doing slow plotting work that makes a difference over time. And that's really the way that building a business works.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I think marketers have a role to play in in making the web a better place, making the internet a better place. And like, what's your view on it? How, how do you think we as marketers can make the internet a better place?
1: Wow, that is a really big question. You know, I think the thing that we could do is be a little bit more respectful. So what I mean by that is when I see a company like Basecamp, and I, I just love Jason Fried and Basecamp and what they do. Um, I don't use the product. I actually don't like the product very much. But in terms of how they built their business, I love it. So when you visit Basecamp, they're not throwing, you know, all kinds of pop-ups and downloads and all this kind of stuff at you, right? They're basically saying, "We have something good. If you use it, we think you'll like it." Um, and we have some free content for you if you want to be more awesome at managing projects. And that's about it. And so I I think that um, their focus has been on building a product that a lot of people like. And that's obviously the best marketing. I have a friend at a, a pretty early stage company, and they've been growing at something like 50% plus month over month for, I don't know, 16 months straight. Um, and the reason they're growing that fast isn't because they have such a great marketing engine. It's because the product works for a lot of people and solves a big problem for them. Um, and so I think there's a role in, in customer research and talking to your customers and coming at it from a marketing perspective that also rolls in, um, parts of, uh, parts of what you learn into the product and that's going to naturally market your product um, I, I think where we get into trouble is if we're selling something that people don't really want that much, that's when the web becomes a really nasty, ugly place full of um, intrusive advertising, loud images, um, you know, deceiving headlines. Um, those are the types of things that I'd really like to see people get away from. But I, I confess that there's no, no foreseeable future without that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, things are getting better, I think. I don't remember which guest
0: mentioned that, but he said that um, like those products will die anyway, right? Because they're bad, or, or else they will improve, and therefore the marketing will get better. But I think the respectful brands and respectful companies will, will stay there for decades, and the other one will just struggle and die, uh, naturally. Uh, that's well,
1: actually. maybe, you know, I, I think there's a business model component to this, too. So, like, um, Outbrain, for instance, I don't know if you know, but uh, I don't know if this is still true. But at one point, most of their sales were coming from companies trying to buy traffic because they paid less for a click on Outbrain than they would get on display ads. So basically, Outbrain had underpriced um, Google's display network, which meant that people were just funneling traffic. So you know that's a guaranteed way to have a shitty internet, um, and you know, Outbrain is still around for some reason. Uh, I'm not, <laughs> not totally sure why. I, I personally don't know anybody who uses it. But, um, you know, I, I think those are things that need to be addressed that are a little beyond marketers, but partially also from a marketer's perspective, right? We, if, if we're going to advertise on a network like Outbrain, I think it's incumbent upon us to do it in in sort of a legitimate way that makes people uh, happy when they interact with our ads, I'll give you an example. Um, I subscribe to the Washington Post, and they've dedicated a ton of money into their technology. And they have inline ads when I'm browsing the morning paper on my phone. But they're all, they look like articles, right? So great photos, very well-written copy, um, great storytelling. Like, that's where I, I think that marketing is going to have to go where you invest much more in a small number of resources rather than throwing shit at the wall or spaghetti noodles at the wall and seeing what sticks, <laughs> right? Um, and so that's what I'd be hopeful for.
0: Uh, for the listeners who don't know about Outbrain, it's basically the small related articles at the bottom of news articles or that kind of stuff that are usually extremely bad. Like you won't believe how this grandma won like five grand uh, last, uh, you know, yesterday but, uh, using this one simple trick type of ads, right? So They yes. are usually pretty bad ads. And exactly, exactly as you said, their clients are usually uh, companies who are funneling traffic to their website in order to get paid uh, for the traffic that they're, getting, you know, that they're getting in return. So yeah, it's pretty bad. And, and I know a few companies using them, but this is the type of stuff which you talked about before. It's that they wouldn't necessarily tell you that they are using them because it's kind of nasty.
1: Yes, we won't name any names, but no. it's nasty and shame on them. Ooh. Um, right, let's get into the customer research part because that's a really exciting
0: thing. So, my guess is that a lot of listeners have never done customer research the way you've done uh, and the way you, you talk about. So, exactly as we said at the start, I'd like to go into the details of, of how to get started and how to do customer research the right way, how to actually understand why people are buying from you, why they're not buying from you, and what to do about it?
1: Yeah, great question. So, you know, I'm a big believer in the buyer's journey, which is really a fancy way of saying people go through a process in order to make a decision about whether to buy from you. And I'm not of the opinion that it's our job to convince people or persuade people to buy from us. I'm of the opinion that it's our job as marketers and or salespeople to give a complete picture about what people would get by buying from us um, and so, so that they can make an informed decision, right? That's really my goal is helping people make informed decisions. And sort of underlying that is this assumption that if I have a good product, and I'm showing it to the right person, they're often going to say, yes, I should buy that because it is actually in our mutual interest, right? I'm making something that can help them. Um, and by buying it, uh, they're giving me something that I want, which is money, right. And a new customer. Uh, so I I think that's the first part of it is having the right mindset going into this, but back to this customer journey idea. So if anybody wants to learn more about how to do this, and if you're furiously taking notes right now, I do have um, a Buyer Insights email course that, that'll kind of teach you the main things that you need to know about this. Um, and so you can just go to BuyerInsightsCourse.com and sign up for free. Um, but really, the, it all starts with your customer, right? So we wanted to learn who's actually buying from us um, what was going on at the time that they bought it. So we want trigger events. Um, so for instance, a trigger event for a uh, hot jar, for instance, might be, I feel like I could have more conversions on my website, but I'm not totally sure what's happening to prevent me from doing that. Um, so that could be one or a trigger event could be my boss told me we need 10% more revenue from our e-comm store within the next six months, and I don't know what to do, right? So I'll sign up. So that, w- that would be a very powerful trigger event because it's external to the person. Um, that would be a, a very strong sale for us to make. But whatever it is, we want to go out. I'd say the fastest thing you could do is go out to people and ask 10 of your customers, people who bought, who are a representative sample of, um, all of the people who buy and ask them, what caused you to buy? How did you find us? sort of, what was your research process? Um, what were the final doubts in your mind before you bought? So the, that would tell us what our, you know, what the objections are that we need to overcome and how we can do that more effectively. Um, and then I would also ask them, what was it like after you bought? What, what did you actually get out of this? So those are often two different things. And I think you need to, when you're doing any customer research, you really need to, um, ask specifically where, what, why, what they thought they were buying initially and what they actually got, because often those things will not be the same. Um, and so that's, that's the biggest piece is talk to your customers, get that information about why people buy, take notes. After you do five to 10 interviews, you'll have you'll know at least twice as much as you knew before, probably much more than that. If you still want to keep going, um, I think there's two more things that I would really recommend you do, right? Is you can look at what can be observed on your website. So analytics, click maps, those types of things, sort of data, right? So on the one hand, we're asking people to respond to questions on the other hand, people's behavior may differ from what they tell us, right? Because some of their, some of their answers may be aspirational, whereas the, their behavior is just their behavior. We can observe it. We can see what they're doing and, and draw some insights from that. And then the other thing is the competition. So the reason you want to look at the competition is anytime someone's making a buying decision, they're, you know, the way the human brain works is we compare things against other things, right? So if you go house shopping, no one's going to look at one house and take it, or at least very few people will, right? They'll look at a few houses and then say, well, this one's in a busier neighborhood, but it's walking distance to restaurants and shops. Um, This one's cheaper, but I have an hour commute on and on and on, right? So same thing's going to be the case when people buy from you. So you want to know how, like, what are they comparing you to? and that's your true competition, and then figure out how can you differentiate from your competition in order to give people a very legitimate and clear choice that's uh, different from the other options out in the market. That's my synopsis. So going back to the, to the first point, which is talking to people
0: and actually interviewing them, how would you convince customers to, to talk to you? Like, What's the, the hook for them?
1: Yeah. So the hook for customers is I always elevate them to a level of expertise, um, and also, um, ask for a favor. So if you're, if you're doing this over email, um, I use a subject line, like, um, can you do me a favor question mark? And then the body of the email would be something like, uh, Hey, Louie, um, you've been a, you know, thank you so much for being a customer of my company. Um, one thing that we need to do occasionally is talk to our best customers like you and understand why they bought you Louie are, have this really exclusive knowledge, which is, you know, why you bought what you're getting out of our product. And so I'd like to talk to you for about 20 minutes because you're an expert on our company. And and have a perspective that we don't have internally. Would you be willing to help me? Question mark. Um, And usually what I find is uh, I get a very, so it just depends on your customer type. So if you're in the financial industry, this is going to be tough because it's very kind of closed off and there's lots of rules and regulations. But in most companies, you'll find that people will be very responsive and people love and love, love, love to talk about their opinion So we want to give them a chance to do that. Which is why this podcast is so successful. Yeah, because I love to talk about (laughs) how smart I am.
0: (laughs) It's true. I mean, we're not even laughing about that. That's exactly true. This is why so many people are willing to talk on podcasts, obviously, because they might get business out of it, but also because it makes them feel good about themselves, makes them feel good about being an expert in their field. That's a good feeling. Uh, but that's a yeah. very good email, uh, script that you got there. So it's all about them. It's all about making them, uh, the center of, of, of this project saying that you're an expert in your, in our product and we, we want to
1: know more. Would you advise to, if possible, to meet them face to face? Face to face is fine. Um, I, I would definitely advise at a minimum to do a video chat if possible. Um, and one, you know, there's a whole, kind of maybe not science, but there, there's a way to do good interviews and most people don't. Um, and really the key is to talk as little as possible, right? You want to, you want to cue people up so that they're focused on the right things and you're getting what you want to get out of the conversation, but really, you know, ask open-ended questions and just be quiet. And then if people start to open a door Um, And what I mean by that is they tell you a little bit about something that you want to know about, but they don't tell you everything that's on their mind. I'd say something like, hey, you mentioned, um, you know, where you were at the time that you bought. That seemed important. Can you tell me more about that? Right. And so we want to ask these kind of follow up questions so that people will expand upon what they're telling us.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. It's difficult for, for most people to to put their you know, journalist hat on while usually it's the sales hat that they have on. But yeah, it's extremely beneficial to to avoid trying to convince them of anything. It's all about letting them talk. And it's not about them being right or you being wrong. It's just
1: their truth. And this is what you need to listen to, right? Well, they're giving you very valuable information, right? So your job is just to shut the fuck up. (laughs) Let me be really clear about it. Um, so, you know, additionally, um, when I, I said open-ended questions, kind of the alternative to that is we don't want to ask any leading questions. So, you know, if you had an email product, you wouldn't want to ask a question like, so is the automation and drip sequence feature your favorite feature? That would be an awful question, right? Because you, you've primed them, um, about, the answer you want to hear. And most people will want to satisfy you, the interviewer. So rather than that, you would say, what feature do you find yourself using the most? That would be a much better question. Um, so yeah, I, I I mean, yeah, you're right. Be, be a journalist, listen, make sure you're getting what you need out of it. But your, your goal really is to just be quiet Take notes, also record the call. So there isn't a lot of pressure to like record everything, you know, manually write down everything that's happening.
0: And so that's the first, the first step. And then the second step you mentioned was?
1: Uh, the second step that I mentioned was kind of analytics and data, right? So if we're talking about websites, um, we, we have an advantage in terms of learning about people um, and what they're actually doing. So, you know, if you're in a content role, one of your first questions should be, well, what are people actually paying attention to now? Right. Um, where do most of our signups come from and why? Um, and those are the types of things that would help you learn not only what to create next and what's missing, but also how to sell and and how to drive awareness in the future. Um, so yeah, uh, I think data is a really critical thing.
0: And then you mentioned competitors. So what would what would you typically do with these competitors? And what type of competitors would you select?
1: Yeah, so there's actually, um, I haven't written about this, but I think about it a lot. Because if you ask someone, who are your competitors? Any good entrepreneur will tell you, I don't actually have any competitors. So I, I'll give you an example. I was listening to... Um, the founder of Equinox gym, which is a very fancy gym. It's like $250 a month or something. And you know, it's, it's very fancy. And he was asked in an interview, who are your competitors? And he said, really, I have none. Well, that's not really true, right? There's a local country club, there's um, any gyms that are nearby. um, There's, you know, getting a nice pair of Nikes and just running on the sidewalk. There's all kinds of competitors that he has to deal with. Uh, so I think the key for me is usually to ask people, hey, when you're making a decision to do business with us, were you, were you evaluating us against other companies? And, you know, they're inevitably going to say yes. And I'd say, oh, okay, who? who who were you comparing us to? Um, and then they'll tell you, and then you would ask something like, so why did you ultimately decide to go with us? In other words, what you're, the information they're giving you, I'll translate it from a marketing perspective. What we're really trying to get them to tell us is what was the differentiator about us that stood out the most that made you choose us? Um, and that's really, really important. So you know to answer your question directly about competitors i think it's best to just ask people who are you comparing us to uh, and why and that'll that'll give you your best competitor list because if you go online and you know you ask a product like spyfu who your competitors are it's just going to do keyword research that's not a good way you'll tend to want to go choose other people in your area so if you're a local business you are restricted to your local area so if you're a plumber right um, you're not going to look at competitors in another city. Um, but generally, uh, you know, I do business with people all over the place and, um, they're comparing me to a very finite group of people. And so I'll ask them and they'll tell me.
0: And there's one competitor or should I say one alternative that marketers tend to forget and actually to do nothing, right? Because people tend to, yes. to choose the least risky options. And sometimes the least risky options remain to do nothing. And that's something
1: to, to account for, right? Right, absolutely. Yep. Um, to, right, do nothing or just stay status quo. So if you're selling a CRM, right, and, and someone doesn't have a CRM, they're probably using a spreadsheet. Um, or they're just using their inbox. So those are the types of things you would want to message if you feel like someone's in that state. Versus if they're switching... Um, to something that, that would be totally different messaging if they already have a CRM, but they want to switch to something that's bigger, has more features, blah, blah, blah. Yep. I I totally agree. Do nothing is, uh, the most likely choice that they will make. Um,
0: so you talk to people, you really get to know them and why they bought, why they were almost didn't buy. Uh, the type of of alternatives they compared you to and then i'm curious to know um, once you've done that how would you build like how would you come up with an effective messaging or an effective copy for your website
1: let's say that is the art of it all isn't it because now now we've collected you know 10 20 40 pages of research um and we have to make choices um so it's one thing to have the data But it's another thing to figure out what is that one, two or three things that I want people to remember when they are exposed to my business. So that's that's a very difficult question. So, you know, the the way I would kind of look at it is what is the stickiest message? So by sticky, I mean, there's a, a book by the Heath Brothers called Made the Stick. And so they talk about basically why are things memorable to us? Um, and so if, if you're not familiar with it, you might read it, but basically, you know, you need to think about what will agitate someone's pain, what will get their reward receptors up and activated. Um, and also what will be memorable. Those are kind of the three things I would think about in terms of choosing how to message. It also depends on, where you are in your cycle. So, you know, a great example I like to think about is Slack, right? If you go to Slack's homepage, it doesn't say anything about instant messaging for teams, right? It's all about work better, work smarter, more collaboration. Everybody already knows that it's an instant messaging solution. They didn't start out that way though. So, you know, if, if you're coming at it from a place where everybody's already aware of your product, you're going to focus not on the the general overview of your product. You're going to focus more on pains and benefits. Uh, yeah, so it it really depends on where you think people are in their buying process when they come to you and how aware they are of you. But overall, yeah, I would say kind of that, that mix of pain, reward, and memorability, that's, that's what we want to focus on. And a thing to keep in mind, Louis, is – The human brain is a very advanced machine, but it has lots and lots of limitations. And one of those limitations is that our short-term memory can only hold, depending on who the person is, somewhere between four and eight things, right? So if you approach your your website and your messaging um, such that you're trying to communicate 10 things, there's a very good chance people will remember zero, uh, if you approach it with the idea that you just want someone to remember one or two things it's much like much more likely to be effective
0: it's i uh, I think it's coming from the book uh, the twenty two irrefutable laws of marketing and they mentioned the law of focus and mm-hmm. I found that extremely valuable. They say that if you focus on one thing only like in your messaging, one key benefit. Um, such as d h l and overnight de- delivery or that kind of stuff, um then your customer will associate you with others, right so for example if 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 you focus on very fast delivery, like an hour delivery, well, people will think that you're also very well organized, very well structured, and um, that your employees must do a very good job, and the leaders must must manage them very well, so there's all of those extra things that happen. in in your customer's mind, uh, that makes it very interesting, a very interesting tactic to actually just exactly, as you said, focus on one or two things instead of trying to say everything.
1: Right. So I hate to go back to politics, but if, if you talk to a lot of, um, people who voted for Donald Trump and you ask them why they will, some large percentage of them will say, well, to make America great again. And you say, well, what does that mean? And they don't have an answer for that question but it didn't really matter. Right. <laughs> that, that one thing. So I think there's focus, but there's also repetition. So the more you say something, the more likely people are to remember it. And so by definition, you can't say as many things. So yeah, I I think focus and repetition go hand in hand and they, they really do um, create this chance for being much more memorable.
0: I, I hate to talk about them because for many reasons, but McDonald's, if you think of McDonald's and their strategy, it's been years and years and years that they're using the exact same uh five tone uh music in uh, every single I'm loving it. Well the ta-da-ta-ta-ta, every single Yeah. alright. Sure. So I'm loving it as well, and the the golden arches, right? So there are things that they have kept the exact same for decades, literally decades. And yeah. This, that works in in in, in people's minds because exactly as you said, they will remember it and and they will build you know uh, some sort of love for the brand after a uh, while once they go there and they are satisfied with the experience.
1: Absolutely, yep, I totally agree. <laughs>
0: Uh, but that's not a good example. We need to sell good products,
1: not shitty products, as we said before. Um, hey, man, I like. I, I just had McDonald's the other day. I like McDonald's. Well, I just wouldn't recommend you eat it very often. <laughs> I'm blaming you, then.
0: You shouldn't do it. Three, but for you.
1: <laughs> um, right. So that's a really
0: good snapshot of, um, of, of what people should start doing with customer research. Once again, and you're not paying me for that, and I genuinely, honestly say if you guys go to uh, goodfunnel.co and read the copy and try to, to reverse engineer it, you will understand how much research uh, Liston has done in, in, in writing it. It is pretty pretty mind-blowing, actually. But yeah, go on it and you'll see a proper example of of, of messaging and copy done right. Um, so Liston, you've been amazing. I uh, have just one or two questions left for you. Um, what do you think marketers should learn today Uh, that will help them in the next 20 years, or even 50 years?
1: Yeah, for me, it's very simple. Um, You're not selling to web visitors or clicks or impressions. You're selling to human beings. So be in touch with the fact that there's an actual person who's living a life who's giving up either their hard-earned money or their company's hard-earned money to do business with you, right? I think it's really critical to always approach it with the mindset that you're actually dealing with people. So, you know, maybe another way to say that is don't be a sociopath.
0: (laughs) Okay. I already know the title for this podcast episode. It's all good. Um, (laughs) You're welcome. uh, What are the top three resources you would recommend to marketers and listeners?
1: Oh boy. Um, that's such a good question. Okay. Top three resources I'd recommend to marketers. Okay. So number one by far to me is the book influence by Robert Cialdini. That is just such a well written book and it's the definitive book on persuasion. Um, so I would definitely recommend that one. Um, I would also recommend Stephen Pressfield's latest book and it's called, I think it's called no one wants to read your shit. Uh, <laughs> And and basically, so he's a very established author and probably some people listening to this have heard of him, but, um, uh, basically it's about how he learned to tell stories effectively. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a a jog through of his whole career from advertising and marketing and kind of being a madman to being, being a novelist. Um, and so to me, he just does a really good job of describing how to tell interesting, convincing, memorable stories. So that would be second book that I recommend. Um, and then I think the last thing that I would recommend is, um, uh, Ira Glass's, um, what is it? Creative live, um, or not Ira Glass. I'm sorry, Alex Bloomberg, the founder of Gimlet media. So if you're a podcast nerd like me, then that means a lot to you. But He basically created a company that has these giant podcasts and he's very very good at telling stories and so you can see a theme here right we want to connect with people and understand how people work and one of the ways that we're most memorable is telling stories and so i really recommend alex bloomberg's um, storytelling through audio uh, course which is just excellent well that's a pretty good way to end this uh, this episode
0: Liston. once again thank you so much for your time Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. Great. That's it for another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, and this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a as a one to one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks I would say. We I'll inform you of guests in advance, I'll share with you it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again, and au revoir.